I was terrified because I thought all my customers are going to go away. And that's the opposite of what happened. You know, everybody got caught up in the excitement of it. Something a little risque, you know, doing something that my fairly conservative customer group was like, oh, that's wild. I can't believe you're doing that. And then all the cigar smokers came out of the closet. And so I can't believe I got somewhere I can go and I can have a, a nice single malt and, uh, and enjoy my cigar here, you know. That's Mike Dine. And this is the stories that brought you here. A podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and it's my absolute pleasure to get to sit down in conversation with people to hear the stories that brought them to this beautiful part of the world we live in, and also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. When Mike was in his 20s living in Ontario, he was doing a couple of different things. One of them was playing guitar in a musical duo, and the other one was owning and operating a restaurant. After a number of years of that, he and his wife Kelly decided to move out to the West Coast and relocated to Pender Island. And it was there he entered into the second phase of his working career, and that was becoming a wine barrel salesman throughout the Pacific Northwest. That job sustained Mike and his family financially for a number of years while they were living on the island. And running parallel during that time, Mike was volunteering at the fire department. Well, a 20-plus year relationship with the fire department on Pender has now made Mike the fire chief on the island. Mike is going to talk about all those various experiences that he's had along his life and so much more. This was such an enjoyable chat to have with Mike. So that's coming up in a minute, but I just wanted to say a warm welcome if this is your first time here. And if you're a returning listener, whew, even warmer welcome. Welcome back. I'm going to let you guys know about a few different ways to follow along with this podcast. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and you'd like to hear more episodes coming out, well, more episodes are coming out. One every two weeks or so for the foreseeable future. And you can subscribe through YouTube now, which I'm on. So the name for that is The Stories That Brought You Here. You can also follow on Spotify through a Facebook page called The Stories That Brought You Here. And I'm also on Twitter, where you can listen to the podcast directly off of, and that is at Stories Brought. All those ways to follow along and more. And I have links down below if you want quick and easy access to those methods. It's a joy to do this podcast, and I'd love to share it with more people. So if you yourself feel like passing along an episode because you thought highly of it, that would be definitely encouraged by me. So there you go. That's it for the intro. And so first, a little bit of music, and then my interview with Mike Dine. Mike, thanks for coming to uh, do this podcast with me. You're welcome. Yeah. Good to be here. How's your day been so far before you uh, you got over here? Oh, it's been good. All the better for having spent a few minutes with you before this interview. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, we got to hang out. We talked for about an hour before we uh, we got started where we are now. Yeah, it's an incredibly mild day in January. This is unseasonably warm today. Right. It's almost going to rain. Yeah. yeah definitely we, not We snow. had a few minutes of sunshine. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful day. But uh, to get into the uh, first question of this podcast, and that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? What brought me to Pender Island? Well, it's not a direct route that we took to Pender Island, but the infatuation with the West started when I was a young man. Um, I used to come out here to visit my, my uncle, my dad's best friend. So therefore, not really an uncle, but I always called him uncle. And I came out every summer 
from the age of 12 on and spent several weeks with him. And uh, we would go, he was all over the province. So everywhere from Kitimat to Prince George, Prince Rupert, you know, all these places I got to go and visit and explore with him. So I became in love with uh, with the province and that's where I wanted to someday go. And so when I got engaged to my wife, Kelly, I took her out here to meet Uncle Fred. And uh, when I did, she fell in love with the West. So pretty much the seed to come out here was planted way back early 80s, just having come out of high school and was engaged to my wife, Kel. And the other thing that happened was we had friends on Salt Spring and we had friends on Thetis Island. So, you know, over the years, we would go and visit them and fell in love with the Gulf Islands. So that, that how that event happened. Uh, so when it came time to actually move out here, uh, we wanted to come to the Gulf Islands. All right. And so when you did uh, eventually make the move to uh, Pender Island, what year was that? That was in 1998. 1998? 1998. Okay. And so when you uh, made the move here, did you, uh, did you purchase a home? Did you rent? I'd say the most impetuous decision of my life was buying the place on Pender Island. Uh, we literally came out here for a, a vacation and visited our friends on Salt Spring and our friends on Thetis and uh, discovered that we couldn't afford, we, that we, we really liked the vibe on Salt Spring, but we couldn't afford Salt Spring. So my friend suggested that we, that we look at Pender because he felt in his mind that it was like Salt Spring, but younger, like in that respect, you know. Um, a real cool place anyway. So we went over here for a, 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 met with a realtor who showed us a few places and, uh, that's how we met Sherry Boyd and, uh, developed a friendship with, with her and she showed us properties and, uh, oh, actually it was one of her people, not her, it was uh, Doug. He showed us different properties and we saw this little cabin on South Pender that was right on the water there just across the bridge. He kept saying, you know, you know, you can't do this. It's too small for a family. And, of course, every time we drove by it, Kelly would say, I really want to see that place. And so uh, we bought it, despite the, the realtor's advice that it was, shouldn't do that. Um, but we fell in love with it, and that happened. And uh, it was the intention. I mean, even when we came out, we weren't intending to buy real estate. You know, it was just to look at things and see what was out there. But it happened. That's what happened. We bought it. So now I had to deal with how were we going to get out there? Because I still had a running restaurant in Burlington, Ontario. And uh, of course, we had to figure out what we were going to do. So that led to another chapter. Okay. And all right. So you said you had a running restaurant in uh, Burlington, Ontario. And uh, this is kind of a, an unusual path to, to get to living in the Gulf Islands when you have uh, already a pre-established life going on halfway <laughs> across the country. What exactly was going on there for you at the time? And how did you make the transition permanently to the island? Well, in 1998, we were well established in Burlington, Ontario. We went there in 93 during the height of the Great Ontario Depression. And um, we took this property that had failed a couple times and we turned it around. That was our second restaurant. Our first restaurant was in Tottenham, uh, which is north of Toronto. Tiny little place, 40-seater. Oh, that's another connection to the West too, because when I sold the first restaurant, 
my mentor told me I needed to get experience with busy restaurants. So he put me in touch with a placement agency and they put me at the Cactus Club in North Vancouver, which I did for a year in between first restaurant and the second restaurant. So when I took the second restaurant on, uh, like I said, it was a failed location, failed twice actually. Um, we put in a bistro style concept into what was a bar concept, like a brew pub thing. And uh, we continued to brew our own beer and made it successful. So in 1998, it was a successful restaurant and brew pub. And so then we had to figure out like what I was, how we were going to transition out West. Cause we, as a couple, Kelly and I had realized that we wanted to raise our children out here and specifically on the Gulf Islands. <laughs> so well, that was a choice that we made. So now it, it was, uh, you know, kind of in my court to sort of figure out how we would facilitate that move. So at the end of the day, I ended up selling Pepperwood Bistro in Burlington. Actually didn't sell till 2000. So for two years, I was running it from back and forth from here to there uh, while we established our home in, on Pender. So um, and I was fortunate that the restaurant was able to continue to pay me. So uh, that supported us uh, until 2000 when we sold it to a, a well-experienced restaurant tour. And, and he's been running it ever since. All right. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time on the restaurant uh, side of the story here because I think it's really fascinating. But uh, maybe we can start with the Pepperwood Bistro okay. here, the second uh, restaurant. And if you could uh, maybe explain to uh, myself and the listeners about how that got established and uh, what kind of a restaurant it was. And uh, you said that it was a brew pub, but uh, I think there's some really great details about that. But uh, I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> well, the... Um the Pepperwood was, uh, I, I basically was listening to uh, my mentor's advice along the road. And the, and the, the, what he was saying to me was the little restaurant that we had in, in Tottenham was a beautiful little place and we did very well there, but we would never, we would never make any significant money in that little location. And if I wanted to make a better living, I would have to get to a city. And so the opportunity to get to the city would happen for people like me that didn't have a lot of money. Uh, the only way I could get to the city is, was during the recession when everybody was going bankrupt. Um, and that's exactly what we did. The two things he told me to do, go get experience. And I went and got experience and then uh, look for a bankrupt place. And I looked for a bankrupt place. And uh, there were lots of them around in 1992, 93. And um, we found the Pepperwood, which was a really cool location, right downtown Burlington, right across from the lake. So it was a real pretty location. And uh, my wife, Kelly, designed a very warm and inviting uh, atmosphere for the restaurant. And the food was also amazing. She did that all for me while she was giving birth to my children. So <laughs> it was a lot to ask of her. Uh, but she did, and uh, we ended up being very successful there. My mentor was absolutely correct. We discovered that it was by far easier to run a big restaurant bar than it was to run a small one. Okay, why is that? Well, you have people. Instead of a little one, you don't you don't make enough money to have people, so you do everything. You know, it wasn't unusual for Kelly and I to work a hundred hours in a week, easy. Um, we were sleeping upstairs in the in the apartment and uh, working every day, seven days a week. 
it's not an easy way to make money. And that's how I met, met really, and got to be friends with my mentor is that I hired him as a consultant to tell me what I should do to get, get out of here. So, uh, we had some great times at that little restaurant and we took the best ideas from that little restaurant to the big restaurant. And one of those things that I had a lot of passion for and, and, and had a great deal of enjoyment from was the music program. We had a concert series there every year, um, as well as live music on the Friday, Saturday night. We also had a series of concerts where we would have people like, you know, Valdi and John Allen Cameron and, you know, big folk, folky guys and gals that were quite popular and we could charge a really good ticket price for them. And they would fill up my restaurant on an off night, like Sunday or Monday night, and I would pay them a reasonable wage for it. And they liked it. And then we fed them really well too. But it was my friend on Salt Spring, Valdi, that uh, he helped me. I mean, I, without him, I could never have got the names, the people, the, the caliber of musicians that I got because he helped me get them. And it was kind of the, he was the first concert I ever did. And uh, because of his reputation in the music world, he was able to refer me many other musicians, uh, some really incredible musicians, mostly all Canadian, but, you know, Garnet Rogers and Ian Tamlin and, you know, Scott Merritt and, you know, some really top-notch musical guys. So we were able to do that. And that was a, not something that made us a lot of money, uh, but it's something that I quite loved. It was my passion in the, in the restaurant. Um, I started to love making beer too, but, you know, the music was really the driving force, you know, for us and that and that really uh unfortunately when i sold it to the new owners he wasn't into music at all it's so that that whole concert thing stopped um which is sad um i still get contacted by many of those musicians who miss having that uh, venue to play in because i think it was a pretty nice little venue to play in about 150 seats so you could have a t decent return selling 150 tickets at 20 dollars ahead um so they felt it was a you know, not only a warm place with good food, but paid them reasonably. Totally. Actually, you know, it comes to mind a gather restaurant that existed on Pender right. briefly there, right? And it sounds a little similar as to what they tried to pull off uh, at Hope Bay there. Yeah. And the, the, I'm sure they ran into the issues that I ran into in my first restaurant and that there's not enough seats there to sustain the music. You need at least 100 seats before you can you start to make the money off the tickets that will support the musicians that you want to have. Um, and that was a lesson I learned in my first restaurant, a very frustrating lesson, but it, I did learn it there. Um, and then when I realized that the scale and size of the restaurant was key the, to being able to get the caliber of musician that I wanted to, to work with, you know, uh, it was magical when it happened. Um, and we had some incredible shows there. Not everybody might remember John Allen Cameron, but when he came, he's from uh, out east. And so he filled my restaurant with 150 Easterners. And what a fun bunch. I mean, they were, that was one of the most <laughs> fun concerts I ever did. You know, they were clogging on the table and it was just hysterical uh, and good fun. And I remember that night, uh, that last concert he did, he, he had brought this young new musician, uh, Ashley McIsaac 
to come play on the stage with him because this I actually was friends with John Allen's son. That was a bit of a surprise. Yeah, so that was a memorable concert, but they they all were pretty great. So Nice. And we were talking about this restaurant a few days ago on the phone, and you mentioned that you had a unique feature of it that you uh, established a few years in, I think it was, and it's a cigar bar that you had in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeez, I almost forgot about that. Chris, thanks for reminding me. Because I think that in terms of uh, exciting business things, that was probably the most exciting thing that I ever did with a lot of encouragement from my wife uh, and about nobody else. Uh, we decided, that, you know, there's this trend that was happening in the States uh, for these cigar bars and cigar lounges, the resurgence of the popularity of the cigar with young people. Wine Aficionado magazine, and you might be familiar with that. Um, they, the publishers published a magazine called Cigar Aficionado. And uh, you were seeing famous stars, Demi Moore, and smoking cigars on the front page. And it was also in a very attractive, romantic, sort of nostalgic business. And I had never really come up, had an idea that was so trendy. I mean, we were very conservative in our business, you know, it was very, very simple things, comfort food, warm, inviting things that made, but doing something like a scar bar was like out there for me. And he, and like everybody around me told me I was insane, including my father, who made a point of sending me a letter telling me that I was insane. Wow. Um, he took the time to do a handwritten he letter. He did. Okay. Yeah. My dad's good about these kind of things. You know, he's, he expresses himself clearly. But at the time, it was like, wow, I can't get any, nobody wants me to do this. And I just wanted to do it more. <laughs> so, we we uh, we didn't do, I was in, my first shot was I was going to do a separate business cigar bar, totally separate. And we were going to call it Still House. And it would be all single malts and, and, and cigars. But uh, I couldn't raise the money to do that. So, I ended up compromising and taking a section of my existing bar, uh, putting in a a high-powered ventilation system, and then we built a, a humidor, and we ordered a bunch of cigars, and Bob's your uncle. We we were in it, you know, and what an incredible reaction to that. I was terrified because I thought all my customers are going to go away, you know, and that's the opposite of what happened. You know, everybody got caught up in the excitement of it, something a little risque, you know, doing something that, you know, my fairly conservative customer group was like, well, that's wild. I can't believe you're doing that. And then all the cigar smokers came out of the closet. Um, and so I can't believe I got somewhere I can go and I can have a, a, a nice single malt and, uh, and enjoy my cigar here, you know? So um, our forecasted sales for cigars, just cigars alone that year, uh, I forecasted, I think we, we guessed we would maybe do $20,000 worth of sales. And then at the end of the year, we, we had sold $85,000 worth of cigars. And that didn't include the offshoot of all the whiskey and uh, the premium wine and, and fortified wines that we sold, you know, the sherries and the ports and the, all that stuff goes with cigars like magic. Anyway, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. We did a, a huge, this was, this is funny in a, in a different way. We, we did a huge dinner when we started, uh, a cigar dinner. So five courses. Each course was paired with a cigar. What? Wow. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> and we brought in a Cuban cigar roller 
and she, you know, she was sitting on our stage rolling cigars. And of course, that, you know, it was, everybody went crazy. The first year we did it, it was um, an older gentleman and he was, I don't know how old he is. He looked like he was a hundred, but he had, he didn't speak any English and he just, he came up and he was rolling these cigars while we were having dinner. But this is the funny part. I had an incredible, incredibly seasoned service staff, right? They were all my top performers, like in terms of uh, waitressing and waitering. And, uh, and of course, in those days we had smoking section and, you know, it was normal to deal with a little bit of smoke in the room, even though I had really incredible ventilation, but still had smoke. So what I didn't think about was that a hundred people are going to light a cigar <laughs> all at the same time. I don't, I know it sounds ridiculous to say that right now, but I, I just didn't occur to me like that. I, you know, I didn't think it through. I mean, I, I wrote the posters that said, you know, there's going to be a cigar every course. Well, my God, when they lit those cigars, it was like a blue haze. You could barely see. It's like the fog out here. You know, it's like, uh, and those poor wait staff, they, they, the eyes were watering and it was like, oh my goodness. It was like, uh, with the most incredible uh, shock. It was like a shock. I, I didn't know what to do. But we persevered, got through the night. It turns out that they didn't actually smoke a cigar every course, even though they were presented with one. And there was a discussion about why it was paired with the dinner. They didn't necessarily light up. So it got better as the night. Because I did have a really incredible, uh, like we were moving, this is sort of technical terms, but we were moving almost 3,000 cubic feet of air a minute this with the ventilation system I had. So it didn't take long for it to clear up, but in that initial stage, it was like, oh boy, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it was, so you picture a, a, you know, it's a big restaurant. It's like, so it's about 6,000 square feet. So full of smoke to the floor, like in firefighter training, you know, that's the, the thermal layer was on the ground. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. That's making me laugh. That's good. That's a good memory. <laughs> yeah, totally. That sounds incredible. I uh, that sounds like an event I want to go to. I want to go to a dinner pairing with uh, cigars. That sounds well, great. Seriously. You know, sadly they've banned. Uh, you're not allowed to smoke in in uh, licensed establishments, and I don't think anywhere in Canada. Um, but those in those days it was still permissible. You yeah. know, um, and that was another one of the other reasons. I mean, a side reason, not the main reason, but. Um, Toronto had banned smoking, uh, in 97, I think 96 or is that seven? That's around that time. Sounds about Yeah. Right. And I, I all of a sudden got really afraid, you know, cause if they banned smoking, that would have been, a, that would have been a big chunk of my business. Probably a quarter of my business would go away, you know, cigars, sales and related sales. Like it's, it's the related sales that really was impressive, you know, like, because I mean, nobody comes in and has a cigar without having a $20 glass of whiskey. Sure. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, which, uh, was amazing and wonderful. The, the one thing I'm curious about is that with all the pushback that you were getting from, uh, people that you mentioned, like your father and, and others, what was it that made you push forward on that idea and execute it? Because when, when you have people telling you at any stage in your life, I don't think that's a good idea. And there's an overwhelming majority of that. I think that it takes a, a great resolve to fight through that. And uh, obviously the, the story you're telling turned out <laughs> successful, but what was it that kept you motivated to make that happen? 
Well, I think actually if you interviewed my father and you asked him what, what the best way to get Mike to do something, get my son to do something, he would probably tell you to tell him not to. And that's pretty much what everything he told me to do, I did the opposite. You know, my dad wanted me to go to law school and I opened a restaurant, you know. <laughs> so, and then at that time he was like, no, you're, that's insane. You shouldn't be opening a restaurant. And he was right. I mean, probably would have been wiser if I went to law school. But in fairness, that's too simple an answer for that. I, there's not very a lot of things in your life that you get like that level of excitement. I, I I was really excited to do that. It was just like the music, you know. Like it was something that I really, I really thought was really cool, you know. Um, and I did like the the excitement that was around it, you know, and being a little on the edge, you know, of what everybody was doing. I, I kind of liked it. A little counter trend. You know, turned me on quite a bit in that period of time. Um, I haven't done a lot of really crazy things, I don't think. Um, but that was probably the craziest thing I ever did. And and the end of the story, just with my father, is that my he also wrote me a letter apologizing. <laughs> he, after he, uh, I can't remember how long it was into it, but um, he clipped a, a newspaper clipping out of the... Uh, a New York Times, I think it was. Was the New York Times or one of the American papers? I can't remember which one. Uh, my dad's an avid reader, uh, especially of news. And he sent this article, of course, was about the trend of these cigar bars in North America. And uh, so he sent the clipping and then he wrote me a note saying that he was sorry, that he was so negative about the idea. Um, so it takes a big man to say you're sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and... uh it was very satisfying, though, to read that note. Hey, I, I don't think he's aware of how much that meant to me, that he would actually go out of his way to say, I'm sorry. Oh, that's a great, that's a great story. It yeah. is nice. It is, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to apologize for, for things, but, uh, and it, it feels really good to be the recipient of apologies. So that's a good story. You <laughs> mentioned music and how exciting it was to have the music at the restaurant. And uh, part of that reason might be because you had a history with music yourself before right. the restaurant time. Maybe if you could explain a little bit about that, about uh, your involvement with music. Well, uh, that's you're absolutely right. That's the connection. When I was in high school, I started working, teaching guitar lessons at a music store. And I met some incredible guys, musicians there. And became my my closest friends. And one of them, Peter Clark, uh, an incredible musician, uh, we decided we would put a duet together and we'd start playing professionally. And so we did. I started playing in bars two years before I was legally allowed to go in them. So <laughs> confession. Um, but Peter was a couple years older than me. So, uh, and I had a nice beard then. So I looked older. Anyway, um, we, I went out, uh, to, it became my job to get us the jobs. And so I ended up soliciting work all over the place around Georgetown, just outside of Toronto, that area. And more or less, we played regular three or four days a week for about five years. And we, we finished my high school time on that grade 12 and 13. And then uh, we finished Peter's University. So that was another four years. Actually, probably six years that we played solid with the, you know, 
little, very few exceptions. We played pretty regularly. And and in, in those days, you could find places to play where you actually got paid well. You know, I, th- I think the musical union scale was around 20 bucks an hour then. And we were always in that realm, you know. So, I felt like we were doing quite well. Um, we had a lot of fun. We were playing like folk covers, like a little bit of Beatles in there. So it was just fun stuff to listen to. And, you know, things started to slow down to, at the end because uh, the in- invention of the sampling, you know, where all of a sudden musicians were able to sound like a band when they were only one person. And that changed the world for live entertainment. You know, now that the bars were less likely to want to pay for two musicians when they could just pay one. Um, so that was changing. So, but it, it turned out that, you know, we, I got busy. I opened a restaurant, got married. So, um, we, uh, we kind of wrapped it up. Now, having said that, Peter played in my first restaurant with me hundreds of times. Like he would come up to the restaurant and we would play. We had a couple of, um, reunion type shows and stuff. So we played for a lot of years after that, but we didn't play regularly like we did for that period of time when he was in school. Well, you know, not everybody takes that leap to go up on stage and perform in any sort of capacity. And so what was it within you that drove you to make that decision? Because if you're teaching music, that's one thing, but then to go and play regular live music to the point where you're playing hundreds of shows, uh, what was it about the experience that you really enjoyed? It's what's not to enjoy. I'm thinking, you know, I'm chuckling because I'm thinking like you were the type of person that wants an honest answer <laughs> because, you know, there's the canned answer. Oh, I just wanted to play music and, and entertain people. And then there's the 18 year old answer. Like, I just wanted to meet girls. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it was a great way to meet people. And uh, Peter and I, we loved, we loved entertaining people. And at the same time, you were uh, in, encouraged to to play professionally at a quality that was really, I think, quite high, and uh, and that was also great. Um, you know, there's the usual learning curves that you, you experience. Sometimes you play a place and nobody's listening. That's hard to get through the night. Um, but that doesn't didn't happen that often. It happened one time when I inadvertently booked us in a biker bar. That was. That was a good experience. That's the only show we ever started that we actually walked out in the middle. Yeah. Okay, let's hear about what happened that night. (laughs) Well, the manager of the bar was a friend of ours that she had employed us at at another bar. And she took over this bar and and she phoned me and asked if Peter and I would play there. And I said, sure. I didn't even think anything of it. You know, I had no idea that it was, you know, this was a rough bar, like a real Honest to God biker bar, right? She didn't say anything about that. When we got there, it was like, oh my God, what are we doing? And Peter was beside himself. He was, you know, I can't believe you booked us here. I said, well, I'm sorry. I, I didn't actually check it out first. Um, and then, yeah, then it started. We started playing this beautiful sort of melodic, harmonious folk music. And, <laughs> and there, uh, there was one guy. Guy comes, or his girlfriend came right up in front of our faces in the stage, and she screamed at the top of her lungs, "Sex, drugs, and rock and roll." <laughs> That's what she wanted to hear. She didn't want to hear Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, it was it was questionable whether we were going to get out of there intact. You know, so uh, 
we actually snuck out. We <laughs> packed our gear up in the brake and snuck out the back door. And uh, that's the only time that ever happened, but it was quite the thing. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I'm just wondering what, uh, if you can list off your three favorite songs that you remember playing, that you, you really enjoyed playing, for instance, right? That's uh, what, what songs can you remember from those times that uh, stand out? Well, the song that I, I have always played from age 14 on uh, is a Gordy Lightfoot song called Beautiful. And uh, I think to this day, well, you know, second would be Pussy Willow's Cattails, another Gordy Lightfoot song. I think Gordy's my, one of my favorite songwriters. And uh, in his early days, man, incredible music came out of that man's mouth and his instrument. But beautiful, I, I, I've always enjoyed playing it. I always want to sing it to my wife. Yeah, that's probably the one that's dearest to my heart. Okay, so you're a huge Gordon Lightfoot fan. Huge. I'm a Gordon Lightfoot fan, yeah, for okay. sure. I, you All know, right. he's probably, I, I think I have every album and, uh, on vinyl. So, um, uh, you know, yeah, definitely Gordon Lightfoot. That's the kind of player that I always, you know, wanted to be. You know, was and and the kind of I love story music, like music that tells a story. And of course, Gordy Lightfoot's a storyteller by far. You know, Valdi was also one of my favorites too, and I I definitely covered a few of his songs, and he's got some amazing songs as well. But Peter and I probably played more, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, and you know, where 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 we were able to do more harmony. Because it was a, du a duet, so you know we focused on on a lot of really solid harmonies that seemed to be what we did really well together. Our voices were good together. Nice, nice. Yeah. And you said that uh, you still play a little bit these days. Not near enough, but uh, I do play. And you know, my my son Cole is out playing me these days, um, which is nice. Nice to see. He he plays a, a mean guitar. That young man. Yeah, he's pretty talented. <laughs> pretty talented uh, young man for sure. Well, let's uh, jump back into the Pender side of this uh, story of your life here. So after you uh, and your wife Kelly purchased the house on the island and then you know, a couple of years went by and you were able to uh, sell the business in Ontario and then you made the move here full time, what did things look like for you then? Well, at first, pretty unnerving. Uh, I had an, a dream, uh, sort of <laughs> a dreamy kind of idea in my mind that I was going to try to buy a resort on the Gulf Islands. And uh, it was extremely naive on my part. I was not living in the snack bracket that I could afford to buy the resorts that were for sale, bottom line. To put it in numbers to it, I, I was able to go to the bank and I could probably raise a million dollars in 1998. With that, I had the wherewithal to do that, and I thought that would be plenty to go buy a resort. When I was sadly mistaken, I, I could not find anywhere in any of the Gulf Islands that was even remotely close to that. I did find one sort of motel type place that was a uh, under a million, but it it wasn't anywhere near the dream that I had in my mind. So it was a bit of a disappointing. That first year was quite disappointing. So I, I really was scrambling around trying to find work. What was I going to do here? Because uh, I wasn't going to do what I thought I was going to do. Uh, I, tr I actually applied as a for a general manager. I thought maybe I could get job at the, one of the resorts. I, I did that as well. That didn't work out. Um, 
So yeah, gosh, I like many people that come to Pender, I ended up doing quite a few things. I pulled an electric wire for a while and uh, did some manual labor. And then a small miracle happened and through a friend of my father's uh, inadvertently. So it's like a circuitous route, I guess. But at the end of the day, uh, I ended up getting hired by Mendocino Cooperage in, uh, in California to sell wine barrels in the Pacific Northwest, which would be Oregon, Washington, and all of Canada. They just sort of threw in Canada. And uh, I got that job and I received some very special training from uh, a really special man who taught me the, the trade, more or less. He's become a good friend. And and really that saved our lives. And like, you know, because I was able to make a really good living. And at the same time, uh, I was home a lot. I was on the road a lot. But when I was home, I was home. So I, I didn't actually find sustainable employment on Pender Island. I sustained us off island. Okay. Uh, well, I want to dig into this because I'm super curious about this because we talked about this oh so briefly the other day. But I was like, what? A wine barrel salesman? What, <laughs> what, what does this whole thing look like? So what did that look like? What did a typical uh, work week look like? How long did you do this for? What kind of experiences did you have? Wow, that's a big question. But uh, it's a special place to be, being a barrel salesman. It's unlike selling anything else uh, because there's very few barrel salesmen. And in order to learn what you need to know to sell a barrel, you have to be shown because there's no place to go to school for it. Um, the closest sort of formal education that you would get would be doing viticulture education or enology, you know. I'm sorry, what is a knowledge? It's the ability to basically be a winemaker. That's the degree that you would get. Okay. Um, it's it's all about flavors and smells. and Like a sommelier would do a lot of training in this area. You know, they develop their olfactory system so that they can pick out different flavors in their mouth as well as their nose. And you associate certain flavors, certain phenolics with the chemicals that are present in the oak, for example, or the, or the chemicals that are present in the grape or, you know, the grape seeds. Like when you get that flavor in a wine, that's, uh, you know, it's only going to come from certain things. It's going to come from the grapes or it's going to come from the barrel. That's really all there is. Okay. You know? uh, the barrel contributes about 20% of the flavor profile. It's just rough numbers. That, that's not, it's not right to the penny. So, my job was to, I had to go into this territory that was being under, underserved. And that's because it's so vast. They, they had focused all their energy in Napa, Sonoma and Southern California because there's a winery every 10 steps. Whereas when you get up here in the north, you got to go quite a few miles to get to the next winery. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's quite something. And, and just to put it in perspective, like 90% of all the wine produced in North America comes from Napa, Sonoma, or Cal California. Sorry, California. That's a high number. I didn't yeah. realize that. Okay. And so, next biggest chunk comes from Washington and Oregon, um, which they always call the Pacific Northwest. And then the little tiny bit that's left is in Canada. <laughs> so, maybe 3 or 4%. You know, it's very, very little. You know, I mean, we, I know we think of ourselves as having a lot of wineries, but their volumes are very low. 
like relative to the American volumes. So they gave me this territory because basically I, nobody wanted it. <laughs> so I had nowhere to go but up. So I just started visiting wineries and meeting people and, you know, trying to find out where I could provide them with the barrel type that would serve them for their, for their recipe for making their wine. Different barrels are different species of wood, different species of oak. So they have different flavors and they're also uh, in the inside is toasted in at different temperatures so that it pulls out different flavonoids and, and phenolics out of, out of the wood. So you can customize the, the, the flavor profile that you're giving the winemaker based on his needs. So that's what I did. You know, I went around. First of all, I learned what I had to learn to be able to give them what they need. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, we went, I just started knocking on doors, you know, and, uh, it's very much a relationship based business. So the first year didn't see a lot of results in terms of money, like sales, but pretty quickly, uh, I, I started to use a couple of things that I thought were very effective. One was, um, I made a relationship with the local wine colleges. Um, where we would bring a, uh, Cooper, a barrel maker up to the college. And for the students, we would build a barrel for them right in front of them. Uh, we called them barrel colleges. And then one of my coworkers would, uh, is a forester and a specialist in, in trees. And he would talk about oak. So we paired them up and people learned a lot. And I met, I met a whole bunch of winemakers. Uh, so for me, it was a great experience, uh, to, partner with them in, 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 in teaching and learning. We also started to do a series of dinners uh, where the winemaker dinner. So we would bring the winemakers for dinner and we would bring samples of wine that sat in our barrels. Uh, and then we would taste the wines over dinner. And that was also something that brought me closer to them. Uh, but like I said, it's a relationship-based sales. So it's not Things don't happen immediately. It, take, it took a couple of years, but we managed to, over the course of uh, three years, we managed to triple the sales in that in that jurisdiction. And so, like, obviously, the the question I asked about what a typical week is, I guess oh, they're sorry. probably I, I, no, no, I, no, I, no, I no. It. But I mean, I, I don't <laughs> think I don't think that there there could be an answer for what a typical week is. Like, that seems from well, what you're saying, it sounds like a typical week on the road. Yeah, would be. You know, I would set up appointments uh, with the winemakers as I was crossing the territory. Okay. So, I, I would go into, say, Washington, eastern Washington, and I'd say, okay, I'm going to be here for a week. And then I would, uh, I would set up appointments you know, th two or three a day, depending on the winemaker. Some winemakers like to share and talk more than others. So, sometimes you have to book a whole day <laughs> with one guy. Um, and then we'd go and we'd taste wine. So, totally exciting, right? Like, so, and I, when you finally get to that point where you have trust with the winemaker, when, when you do a sales visit, it's not really a sales visit. You go there and you're climbing up and down on the barrels, taking samples out of the barrels, your barrels, the ones you sold them uh -huh. with the wine in it. And you're tasting it with the winemaker. It's a pretty special place to be. And for me, what I did is some, I'm, some salespeople would be different. I don't know. For me, I, I just listened to what he was saying. When they, because I, you, you can learn so much from the winemaker. Like they, they have incredible palates. Like there's, you know, some of them are more amazing than others, but 
you know, there's always something to learn. And when they're tasting out of your barrel and you theoretically know what that flavor profile should be, but then you're actually talking to somebody who can actually taste it and, and you know he's not feeding you that line. It's like he's really telling you, uh, you can learn a lot. And they seem to always appreciate the fact that I wasn't telling them what to do. I was just listening. And where I could add some value, I tried to add value. Uh, you know, if there was something that they liked and I could enhance it, for example, if they, they had certain flavors that indicated from uh, a medium toast that might be heightened by going to a, a heavier toast inside the barrel, I could do, offer that kind of information up and say, okay, this is what we can do to tweak this barrel. Or I can say, well, we, you know, we'll go to a different species of American oak. Um, or maybe you should be using European oak, in which case, we, you know, we could source that from France and we can change the barrel that way. So there's things that I can do as a, as a cooper, as a barrel salesperson to help get that winemaker what he needs, what he needs, he or she needs. I, should, I, I keep saying he, but there's lots of, lots of uh, women that are winemakers as well. So that's what my typical week would be after the first year. The first year was about cold calling and anybody that's done sales knows how that hard that is. Like you're trying to get the the face-to-face with the winemaker. Uh, we'll call him the gatekeeper because he's making the decisions. And so that first year too was really hard. Okay. And I would be on the road probably the first two years I was on the road at least 26, 28 weeks a year. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's pretty intense. It was pretty intense. And so at this time, of course, you're based on a small Gulf Island and you're, yeah. you're doing this. So you're catching a ferry to the mainland a lot. Catching the ferry. I, I preferred to do that. The, the alternative to that is you would fly a float plane to Vancouver Airport and then Vancouver Airport to Seattle or further. You can go to Portland as well. I didn't like that so much because I, I, I don't really like flying. And plus you'd have to pack your all your materials and everything and, and carry it in a in a little bag whereas if i could just jump in the truck and go um so like you said i ended up most trips i was taking the ferry yeah and how many years did you do this for oh i continued well i changed cooperages so i moved because unfortunately the cooperage mendocino cooperage uh, closed its doors about four and a half years into my work with them um, and i worked for another american cooperage or french american uh, called Demptos Cooperage. I went to work for them. So all, all told, um, I did it for a, more than a decade. It overlaps with my fire service career because uh, I, for many years, I was not getting any remuneration for being in the fire service. So I had to support us with the uh, with the barrel business. Uh, it was 2010 that I stopped. I closed my business, my barrel business, and I started working part time for the fire service in 2005. Okay. So there was like a five-year overlap where I was doing part-time paid work for the fire service and then a whole bunch of volunteer hours. <laughs> and then I was working uh, and I was still doing the barrels. And, and uh, yeah. How much did you enjoy having that job of being the uh, the barrel salesman? Well, in hindsight right now, it's it was probably the most fun job I've ever had. But at the time, I was really, really wanting to change into the fire service. Like I, I really got sucked in to the fire service. So uh, all I was thinking about for the last five years was how soon can I, you know, go full time in the fire service. But now in hindsight, when I look back, I realize, you know, 
that was a lot of, I did have a lot of fun doing that. You know, it would have been a lot more fun if uh, we didn't have little children at home. Right. Because Kelly could have come with me on those road trips, which were a lot of fun. But one of the reasons I wanted, I was so attracted to the fire service, I, I would be home more. You know, and that that was one of the main attractions. Yeah, totally. Most people don't move to a Gulf Island so they can spend most of their time off of it, right? right. Although some people do, but uh, obviously opportunity presented itself in that department. That's what you had to do. Yeah, I mean, that was in a, that was, I at the time, I was really unsure of what I was going to do to support us. You know, so I was very thankful when the barrel concept came up, you know, and it's uh, through my father, like his relationship with uh, Raymond, the man who taught me everything. You know, it's one of those things where my dad said, I, I've got somebody you need to meet. And he was right. He introduced me to Raymond Wilmers and, uh, you know, Raymond and I hit it off right away. And he's like, you could do this. And uh, yeah, so I did. But it was uh, unexpected, uh, not planned. There's no way I can take any credit for the that working out, you know, like. Yeah, well, you can take credit for working out. Well, I the, can the take work credit you put for that. into it, right? I, I, yeah, I, I, I can. It was successful. Yeah, and because it was successful, I was able to get when they closed the plant. Uh, I was able to get another job right away, which because they everybody knew me at that point. So, um, yeah. So yeah. It was good. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, being part of the fire service on Pender Island, and that's how most people know you. <laughs> and let's let's uh, get into that now. So, uh, how did you first get involved with the local fire department here on Pender Island? It's simple, and it's like how everybody gets recruited. Uh, you know, even to this day, I ran into another firefighter in the hardware store. And, uh, he looked at me and he heard me saying that I was, I had bought a place on, on South Pender and, uh, he jumped all over me. It's like, you know, cause I, of course for South Pender, I was extremely young. I was only in my mid to late thirties <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he, he recruited me right away. I had never even occurred to me to do that before. And so I did, I, I joined up right away nine, right at 98 when we first bought um, and I wasn't able to dedicate my training and everything until later, till 2000, but I was volunteering right away. And it was a separate department back then. It was before they amalgamated the two. So it was a completely volunteer. There was no money involved. It, they only had probably 10, 12 calls a year, but yeah, that's how I got hooked. Once I got hooked, boy, I couldn't get my self free of it. Okay. And so how <laughs> did you get hooked? Because if it was something that uh, never even occurred to you before, and then you found this great passion for it, what, what <clears throat> happened along the way to create that? Just, I think the thing that was, I can't, it's not one particular event that, that really hooked me. I guess it was, uh, it was just the whole idea that, you know, you go out, every time you go out, you're going out to help somebody. And it, there's nothing that feels better than that. Like, you know, it's a very satisfying work. Even at the very beginning, it was, and that was doing not very much, you know, but as things got busier and we amalgamated and even more so, then then you got to do all sorts of great things. Like, you know, we got to run the youth camp and we got to, I got to teach people. I love teaching, you know, I got to teach other firefighters. So, all the things about me that I, I love, but never was able to express in in the in a business world, you know, not so much. I mean, I did a little bit of teaching and, and training. Well, I did quite a bit actually in the restaurant business, and I enjoyed that part of that job quite a bit. Um, but doing it in the fire service was even more satisfying, and really 
is hardly ever a situation when you go on an emergency call where you don't make their life better. When you get called to something, generally, it's they're having a very bad time. And when you get there, from the moment you walk in the door, somehow you're making them feel better. You're not necessarily able to fix it, but those people feel better. It's, it's just something hard to explain, but you bring, just by your presence, you bring a level of comfort that you can see affecting them physiologically. And, uh, and that's more for the medical calls, but even on a, on a structure fire, when you get there and you start to do things like, man, there's a lot of appreciation there and it, it fills your heart. Like you can't not be affected by it. You know, I, I think of different things like, like going to a fire and our guys saved a bunch of items from the house and they put the fire out, which was also great. <laughs> but they saved a bunch of items from the house and they weren't items of any monetary value, right? But when the owner saw that they had saved these items and, you know, placed them under a tarp outside, uh, she immediately started to cry and she was so grateful and so thankful for something that had, like I said, no monetary value whatsoever. It was all just memories and, and things like that. Like uh, there was a, I shouldn't really name items, but the, you know, one of the items, I'll name one of the items. One of them was a, like a, a photograph of their parent. This is just one example, but you know, it, it's, it's impactful. So there's no comparison. I mean, you, you feel uh, some satisfaction when, when you're selling stuff to people and you have relationships with them and you're serving them, but it's not the same as when you get to, to do this. It's, it's very satisfying. Yeah. And so you were saying around 2005 that you got a part-time position with the fire department and you're sort of waiting for the next uh, uh, shoot a drop or whatever the... <laughs> yeah, I kept, I kept selling barrels like that, you know. So so this discovery of this feeling of uh, the reward that you felt about really helping people, I guess you found this very early on in your time with the fire department? Almost immediately. Like, I, it was before my first call. That I started to realize it. And it was based on how people responded to me and treated me. Even just just starting out as a volunteer and just all of a sudden people, there's different, there's a different way people treat you. Um, and I really noticed it because I was living two worlds. I was a salesman on one side and a firefighter on the other. And it, the, it was so interesting how people respond and treat you, you know, in those two different roles. So you have this immediate recognition of this sense of value of, of helping people along the way. So when when did the idea get started about oh, I really want to make this a career for yourself? Oh, that that just sort of evolved. You know, it, it never occurred to me in the beginning. It wasn't until the, the the two departments amalgamated that I realized. Well, I could see that the writing was on the wall that they were they were going to create some positions. Um, like I said, they started out just part-time positions. And, you know, because of the way my job worked, uh, I was able to control my other schedule. So, I was able to do the part-time thing. A lot of people probably couldn't have done that, you know, because they, they couldn't give up their job. But I didn't have to give up my job. I, could, I just had to work the two jobs. So, yeah, it just sort of evolved. I, I, like, I really, uh, there wasn't really a, a moment where it was like, okay, I'm going to do this full-time. 
I didn't really believe I could or ever would. You know, I just, I was just taking one step at a time. You know, I, as Chief Boyd would offer up ideas and, uh, the, well, it was a different chief when they first amalgamated, but, you know, those ideas would come up and, I don't know, a door would open and I would just go through it. And that's how it evolved. And so for people listening who don't know too much about the uh, fire department on the small island that we live on, I, I think it's interesting for people to know what kind of services that they've provided for the community as the years have gone on. Because you mentioned showing up to calls for actual fires, but that's, from my understanding, very little of what the fire department does is that they do so much more. Maybe you could uh, fill us in about all the different uh, ways that uh, the fire department helps serve this community. Well, we are... Basically, because we're remote and isolated, we end up in a situation where we are expected to respond to all hazards. So, literally anything that goes wrong on Pender, you're probably calling the fire department because there's generally nobody else to call. You know, there's, I think, 15 different types of calls that we get. And uh, only two of them are like a structure fire and chimney fire and those are different types. And we, like you said, a very, very small percentage of about 320 calls a year that we get, a very small percentage is actually fire. A good huge chunk is helping and doing medical first response. That's the biggest piece of the puzzle. Probably a hundred plus calls a year um, that we are doing first response medical. And I don't know if a lot of people realize that, but that's probably the most demanding on us. Um, we see a lot of sadness in the, when the, we in those calls. There's a lot of um, difficult calls that we go on. Uh, we're often there in advance and for a period of time before the ambulance gets there. So you know we get some real wouldn't be normal in a in a city environment because in a city environment you know the the firefighters would go and then like in two minutes they an ambulance would be there. That's about average in downtown Vancouver. In on Pender Island, you know, that it's it's a paid on call like the fire department, but there's only two attendants. So, you know, it's gonna take them longer to get there. You know, and generally it takes probably unless they're actually in the their little hall, probably gonna take them twenty minutes or so. And um and we usually are there in ten, roughly. So it's something that we do a lot of medical calls, but we get calls for, you know, there's a deer in my cistern. Uh, well, let's call the fire department because tell me, who else are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? We pulled that deer out of the, out of the, we had a horse in a cistern. Same thing, fell through the top of the cistern and was floating out the well. Sorry, it was a well. That was Chief Point that did that. Anyway, I think it's incredible how many things we do. Uh, you know, my my cat is stuck behind the drywall in my laundry room. And uh, who do they call? <laughs> they can call us. And we go there and carefully cut that little piece of drywall out and get the cat out, you know, because that's a rescue. Uh, on the serious side of things, though, uh, we are also expected to be able to do technical rope rescue and confined space rescue and hazmat response. And these are things that are require a lot of training and a lot of ongoing training. And I don't think the average resident is aware that we do these things. Every once in a while, you'll hear something like, we rescued a, a woman out of a well, which was a tough rescue. And thanks to the skilled rescuers that were there, we were able to do that rescue. Had they not been trained to that level, 
and maintained their skills, they wouldn't have been able to get her out of there. And um, that's special. Yeah. And so for most of the fire department, they are volunteers. They're volunteers and they're paid on call because they're volunteering for, you know, a great deal of their year uh, standing by waiting for the big call. But they do get paid standby time when they're on duty, which they do about five or six shifts a, a month. So it's it's kind of a hybrid. It's not all volunteer, meaning implying that they're not paid for anything. They do get paid when they work. They just don't get paid for all that time that they're listening to their pager ready to respond. Right. And that's probably a couple thousand hours a year, the average volunteer. So it's kind of, a, it's a bit of a hybrid, not unlike many departments across Canada. I mean, they're all in states of flux where it's getting harder and harder to maintain them completely with volunteers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not an easy job to do. And you mentioned the word training and that uh, keeping up with training. And so maybe if you could uh, speak to that a little bit, because I had a brief experience with the fire department where I joined and uh, after about two months in, I found it wasn't for me. And uh, I got to see some behind the scenes aspects that uh, really kind of blew my mind as to how much uh, effort was being put forth into training people. But I think it'd be interesting for people to hear from from you as to what kind of training that people go through and how much time they actually spend. Well, yeah, it's a, it is a surprise to most people. And um, it's something that I spend more time now explaining before people join up because I, I hate it when they get, you know, sideswiped like you did, you know, and realize, oh, it's, this is much more than I expected. So now I, I spend a little more time now explaining what it is that you're interested in because it's much more than you think for most people. Um, and that really looks like, you know, when we, we expect and we demand uh, the same professional training qualifications as they do in any uh, urban city. And so that means that you have to participate in about 350 hours of training to get your basic firefighter training. And that takes people about a year coming out every Saturday pretty much for the year. And that'll get them their firefighter qualifications, which we provide through Vancouver Island Emergency Response Academy or College of the Rockies. We use an institution so that it is accredited third party. And therefore, also something that the firefighter keeps with them. They, if they leave Pender Fire and go to another department, it's the same credential and it's recognized. That's why we do that. But that means more time. So, you know, you get in, you start and you don't realize that it's, you know, it's going to take you all year just to get done your basic training. <laughs> and then if you want to go further than that and you want to start doing technical rescues, that's, those are other courses on top of what you've already done. and. Then the the next level, so that's a huge commitment, okay? Now, it's a huge commitment. It is pretty interesting training. Like, it's not boring. A little bit boring some days because you have to watch a bunch of PowerPoints. But, you know, other days you're actually getting out on the fire ground and you're doing real training. It's, it's, it's quite exciting, you know? It's pretty hard to fight a fire and not get a little bit excited because it's, it's exciting work. So, there's that too. The rewards are very high. The training is very demanding, but the rewards are very high. And um, so then once you're up and running and you're, you're, you got, you have your credentials, 
then we expect you to do like every Thursday night all year round. Uh, and that's for your skills maintenance. You have to do your training all the time. Like you have to keep training. Otherwise, you forget how to do things. Like I don't remember how to tie that figure eight in a bite. You know, I have to practice it a couple times a year. It's so much to keep in your head. So, uh, so we're demanding that they come every Thursday night all year round for a couple hours a night. And then on top of that, we expect you to, you know, kind of expect you to do at least 100 calls a year. Otherwise, you're really not helping us because we do 320. So, <laughs> you know, so the expectations are extremely high. And I'm not surprised when somebody says, you know, like you just said, you know, yeah, that's more than I thought. You know, like I, I didn't realize that because, you know, most of us have this sort of re idea or reflection that, you know, we're in a little tiny village, Pender Island, and they probably don't get that many calls. And probably it's like more of a social club than it is an actual emergency service. That's what most of us grew up with. Like when we're in our, I grew up in a small town and the fire department was like the guys got together every Thursday night, had a few beers, washed the trucks. Uh, it was great fun and great friends. And when something went really bad once or twice a year, they would all get together and rebuild the barn or, you know, stop it from spreading to the neighbor's house. That, that was it. Today's expectations are a lot different. We're expected to put that fire out at the point of origin wherever possible. And, um, you know, the requirements to do that kind of work are much higher. So, you know, just to keep our people safe, they have to do a certain level of, of recurrent training. It's not only a work safe requirement, it's a moral requirement. It would be irresponsible if I didn't make our people do that recurrent training. Yeah, that makes that makes they would be unsafe for them and for their coworkers, you know. So and that's the hardest part of the job is keeping that recurrent training going. That's the hardest part of the job in, in terms of um, managing management. all that time for training? I, I should have said, in, in terms of management, yeah, that's the hardest part. Because uh, when you have full-time career firefighters, that's easy to do their recurrent training. You just schedule it on their shift and they do it. <laughs> they don't have a choice. Sure, yeah. But when you're working with volunteers, they have a choice. They don't always come to the training nights. So you hit 50-50. So it's a lot harder to maintain those skills. So from your time when you first got involved with the fire department, that was so many years ago, to the time we're at right now in 2023, where you are the chief, what would you say that you've uh, learned about yourself through all your experiences that you've had through the fire department? And maybe in tandem with that, what have you learned about the community? Because I know that you mentioned that you, you found a great pleasure in helping people, but what else have you been able to discover about yourself and about this community through all the time that you spent working for the fire department? Well, I put some thought into that question and because I'm coming to the end of my career and I put a, I've reflected on it quite a bit. And I, I have to say that the biggest lesson that I've learned is a, about myself is how I lead on an organization, how I lead people. And, uh, you know, I've taken seminars and courses and read books about leadership. And at the end of the day, after, you know, between the restaurants and the fire service, I've been working, leading people for 40 years plus. Because you have to lead people when you have a restaurant too. Because <laughs> they, you know, they just don't do the right things without some form of leadership. 
I have decided that my method or my style is I lead with my heart. It's, uh, yeah, I pour my heart out to the people around me. And that's how I lead people. I didn't realize that for a long time. Uh, I realize it now. And I wouldn't recommend it for other leaders. It, it takes its toll on you. But it is truly how I've operated, how I've led. And I've been able to and fortunate enough to lead some amazing people. And I don't think I could have led them if I hadn't been the emotional sponge that I am. <laughs> so, uh, But I don't think Harvard's going to start teaching that method for management and leadership. As a matter of fact, I, the, some of the literature that I've read on leadership would indicate the exact opposite, that one should never do that, um, never lead that way. But that is what I've done. So, you know, as it comes to the close, I, in my career, I realized that that's how I've managed to get some incredible response and performance from the people that work with me. But it's also probably the hardest on yourself, on your own humanity and your own soul. Um, it's it because I, I realize that every time you, you take on things, emotions and bring yourself into their heart, then it's taking, it's sort of, it's drawing on your, on the jug inside your heart. You know what I mean? It's emptying the jug. <laughs> so, and so, so you have to find ways to refill it. And, and I, I have found some ways, mostly by the people that we're taking care of, uh, they refill it. And some of the people I work with refill my jug, but it is hard to keep it full. Now, uh, if you're using this method to lead people. And so it's tricky, but I think that's the thing that I've learned about myself. If you had asked me that in my thirties, I would have told you a different answer altogether, you know? I would have said it was, oh, geez, I, I took, read this great book on leadership and I'm doing these things and I'm doing these things and this is what I'm doing to lead my people. But, uh, now in reflection, I think, no, that's not what I did at all. And when people, some people have taken the a moment to tell me that that's what kept them going. So I've had that privilege of somebody, more than one person telling me that. So I think it's true. Well, that's really nice. That's nice reflection to get back from people saying yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the kind of person that you, you are helped them, right? That's, that's a pretty big compliment. It is. Uh, and it's not very many that take the time to do that. But I, I honestly, uh, it means a lot. As a manager, leader, it means a lot when somebody tells you that. And because you never know for sure whether it's working or not working, you know? Um, and in fact, you don't even actually know what you're doing half the time, you know, to be honest, it's like, you're just doing it because that's what it feels right. You know, I, I was telling you a story earlier about, a a firefighter that I hugged on this one occasion that had done something awful and gotten a bad accident. And, uh, I ended up hugging him and it was like, well, it gets us against all the rules. You're not supposed to hug people. And as a matter of fact, as his manager, I should be reprimanding him because he, he broke some rules, Right. But I couldn't. And I don't regret that. I think that honest response to him built a trust with him and I that you can't replace with proper procedure. 
but it's risky. And I guess, I, I, I like I said, I, I don't know whether I would advise this method to other people because it does leave you sort of exposed. It's kind of a weird world that we live in where um, you have institutions, uh, systems in place that, that wind up creating all these rules that set boundaries between us as feeling human beings. And for whatever reasons that are in place, some good, some bad, I'm sure. But I think that when we have too many of those rules and there's too many boundaries, then it's, uh, it's very easy to get disconnected from each other as human beings. I, I couldn't agree more. It makes it a challenge for today's supervisor, manager that it was never there before. Um, but the way things are unfolding, uh, becoming more and more difficult to be open and honest in your feelings and your compassion, uh, put you in conflict with what's acceptable behavior in today's normal society. You know, like, on normal, I don't know if that's the right word, but, um, yeah, it's really, it's really a strange thing. And I'm glad that I'm, I'm not starting out in this environment because I'm glad that I was able to go through a period of my life where I could embrace people and not be reprimanded for it. You know, because uh, uh, it's, that's so much part of my nature that I can't even imagine trying to not do that, you know, but uh, I am becoming a dinosaur. Like that's what it feels like. You know, it's like, yeah, you're, you're so out of it, you know, um, everything from figuring out how to work my social media to, um, you know, the right actions and behaviors to have. It's really a strange time. Yeah. Well, the feeling you get from getting a uh, hundred likes on a social media post uh, doesn't even compare to the feeling one receives from getting a hug from somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know it's, it's strange, right? It's such a simple, uh, simple action, but they can have such negative connotations that if done incorrectly, you know, it, with the wrong intent. And that's unfortunately, I guess, what's happened is enough people hugged people with the wrong intent that now we're not allowed to do it. So, you, you know, you're sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Sure. It's it's too bad. But, yeah. I mean, I'm not – I didn't want to make it that simple that it's all about giving somebody a hug because it's not that simple. But this idea – the hug sort of symbolizes what I'm trying to explain. And, and that in what I really think is difficult to explain is like the – concept of being open emotionally and and using your intuition to decide you know where your level of trust is uh, and trusting it you know that's hard to explain to somebody when you're trying to mentor a a, a manager and you're trying to explain this it's like i i don't know how to explain it like it i, I for me i think it's because i was a bartender for a long time but i use that skill all the time and I decide who I'm going to trust based on that interaction. Like the dialogue we're having today, I, I, I feel a trust with you and I, I'm willing to open up in that regards, even though you're recording it and that scares me. But it's, it's just, uh, in terms of a leadership skill, it's, uh, it's a, tr it's a tricky one to, to use. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think having conversations like this and uh, being able to, you know, spend some time and using words and, and communicating these ideas with each other allows uh, for the possibility to exist that uh, people will be able to understand these things better. And through us having conversations and, and speaking out loud, it helps us understand ourselves even better as well, too. But uh, I feel like we have to, uh, we have to wind down and yep. wrap up this delightful conversation we're having but before we 
come to the conclusion, I just want to give the last word to you. Mike, is there anything you want to say to uh, the people of Pender Island and beyond who are listening that we didn't cover here today? Oh, I, I, it's been a beautiful community to raise my children in Pender Island. And it's been a great community to serve. I've, I've felt well appreciated here and uh, at every turn uh, for a lot of the, for my life's work here, which is really the majority of my working career has been right here doing this. So I appreciate it. And I really appreciate Chris, you taking the time to, to talk to me about these things. Cause you know, you just don't get an opportunity to have this kind of conversation very often. And it is timely for me. It feels really, really good. So thank you. Holy smokes. Wasn't that amazing? What a great guy. Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. That was really fantastic. Big thanks to Mike again for sharing all those stories. It was really, really nice. Again, it was such a great time to hang out with him and do that. And yeah, I love those stories. If you enjoyed those stories and the whole podcast itself, please feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Apparently, that helps to draw new eyes to the podcast sometimes where it'll get put up and shown to more people. So that would be great if more people stumbled across this. Again, there's links down below if you'd like to subscribe. And as well, too, there's a huge back catalog of episodes. If you're looking for something else to listen to, if you scroll through the different episodes, I'm sure you'll find one very quickly that you're interested in listening to. So thank you again for listening. And thanks to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music to this podcast. And until next time.